Welcome to the Jongets Games Podcast, where in today's episode, you'll be hearing the audio from a live Good Games vlog, where I discussed my initial impressions for Juicy Fruits, Sheepy Time, as well as Trans America. Now, as always, I do want to mention that the only reason this podcast is being made is because of the direct support that comes in through the Patreon campaign for the channel. You can learn more about this by going to patreon.com slash Games, and I do hope that you would consider directly supporting the campaign if you enjoy listening to my vlogs in podcast form like this one here. The final thing I'd like to ask is that if you have any questions or comments about anything I say today, that you please leave those as a comment on the YouTube page for the vlog, and you can find a link to that in the description of this podcast. Uh, Alright, the first game I'll be discussing is Juicy Fruits. This is a really new game. It's uh, just published um, now-ish. Uh, it's starting to hit people uh, to be delivered to their houses from pre-orders, I believe. And I was sent a copy to make a sponsored tutorial playthrough for this one. Uh, now, it's a wonderful player game uh, that takes supposedly between 20 and 50 minutes uh, to play. And I have played a full two-player game in my tutorial. And I also played a Let's see, I think it was a four-player game of this one just about a week ago, so um, it's somewhat fresh in my brain. Uh, so on that note, let's take a look at the game and talk a little bit about how it works. Now, when I first heard about this game, I was instantly intrigued because of the base idea where every player has an island board in front of them with a square grid on it, and you have these little basket tokens on them, and on your turn, what you're going to do is select one of your baskets, and you move it um, up, down, right, or left uh, until it stops, or you could stop earlier, but there's rarely a reason to do that, and then the number of spaces that you move will be the amount of fruit that you get of the associated type of that token. So if you move a mangosteen tile up two times, then you will gain two mangosteens from the supply and you put it into your area. Now, at the start of the game, your island is really crammed. There's these boat tiles that are on every beach around your island, so effectively the movable area is just a three-by-three three grid, and you have five of these collection baskets in there, so it's really crowded. In fact, that means on your first turn, the most fruits you can get is just one. You can just slide a token over once, so you gain one fruit, and then that's essentially going to finish your turn. Uh, on your next turn, though, hypothetically, by moving that one token out of the way, you can now move another token a couple of spaces, and then you can start to move these around, shifting them in ways to get the fruit that you need, because after you move one of these baskets and you gain fruit, you will then be able to um, either spend fruit to uh, essentially pay off a boat that's clogging up one of your beaches, and then you remove that boat tile, put it next to you, you gain the victory points on that tile, and Probably most importantly, you have freed up a spot on your island. So as you continue to spend fruit to make these boats go away, your movable area grows. So you will be able to essentially get more fruit, which lets you clear off more of these boats. Now, if that was the entire game, honestly, I think that would be pretty fun, but there is a uh, pretty big extra thing to the game, and that is these business interests over here. Now, after you gather fruit, you can either spend fruit to make these boats go away to open up spaces on your island, or you can spend fruit in order to go to the business office and take one of these business ideas. Um, now, these business tokens actually go onto your island. So again, when you pay off the boats, they leave and they open up space, but these business ideas go onto your island and potentially clog things up, but they give you a variety of different effects. They might be special baskets that let you gain extra fruit and a flexibility on which fruit you take. They also might 
be simply large tokens that you put down to give you points but clog up your island. And there are also some conditional uh, victory point things in here. Uh, so when the game is over, maybe the player who has, um, uh, well, they'll get like four points for every cleared beach they have or something like that. Now, in addition to that, there is ice cream carts. And this might seem like a tiny thing, though these little uh, tiles that you can pick up as a business idea and you plop them down onto your island. And then what you can do in the future is actually move these ice cream carts around just like your fruit. And for every step that you move, you can make ice cream cones or milkshakes. Now, this is yet another way that you can spend the fruit that you have next to your board. And each of these can give you a significant number of victory points. So gaining access to these ice cream carts gives you a new avenue to get victory points from these tokens. Now, every time you take one of these business tiles and every time an ice cream stack empties, you're going to move the business permit track down one. And once this token reaches the bottom, that's going to finish the game. So there is essentially a tension here where early on the game, you obviously want to be clearing off these boats because the less boats you have, the more room you have to move your tokens around to get them out of the way of other tokens and just to move farther, which is going to give you more fruit so your turns are more efficient. But when it comes to these business interests, there's a set number of them at the start of the game depending on the player count. And once they're gone, they're gone. So there is a race element there. And in fact, this is realistically the only way that players interact, um, taking these tokens away from other players. And um, by taking these, you kind of clog your island up, but you give more ways to score victory points and having the most victory points is how you win the game. So that is a really important thing to consider. So if everybody is fine just doing uh, uh, these boats, removing them, then people might ignore this business, this business board entirely. But um, that's probably not the best thing to do, especially if you feel like you are lagging behind. Uh, so now we can talk a little bit about how this one play went. And um, in this play, we, uh, well, first of all, you always randomly get boats around the outside of your island. And I noticed to uh, uh, my chagrin that none of my islands, uh, none of my boats cost two fruit to clear out. Um, there's a lot of boats that only cost two fruit. And if uh, that's the case, then the first turn you could get one fruit, second turn you get the other one and you clear the boat off. But the cheapest boat that I had was three fruit. So that would be three full turns. And I was lamenting at first, like, man, that's, that's awful. Like you all are going to get to clear a boat off one turn before me and you know it's just random and because I got none that meant some of my opponents got a ton of these but the um, boats they had were worth less victory points because there was uh, less fruit on them so in that moment I thought you know maybe instead of bothering to clear a boat I will just jump up here to the business interest board first thing and take one of these because the top row just costs two fruit so I had an avenue to spend two fruit to do something productive on my second turn even if it wasn't removing one of the boats now fortunately there was one one of these special baskets on the top row. So on my second turn, I was able to gain a special basket and put it on my board. And these special baskets are flexible with the fruit you can take and you gain plus one fruit. So I was able to find a way to still be productive and kind of keep up with my opponents with their cheap boats compared to my expensive boats. Now, as we continued to play through the game, I was able to get a bunch of my boats out and I wasn't really worried about how that strange start happened because um, I was able to, you know, get around it a bit with a basket and you take a lot of turns in this game. So uh, being like one turn behind and clearing a boat is not that big of a deal. Um, but one thing that I did become concerned with was the ice cream carts. Now, in my tutorial video, I um, did... I believe a full playthrough and the ice cream carts were pretty dominant in that playthrough to spoil my playthrough a little bit. Um, you can get so many victory points from these ice cream cones and I couldn't help but feel like, man, I wonder if those ice cream carts are just what you have to do. There's only a certain number of them and you go after them and you turn fruit to victory points at a great rate. And as we were playing this game, I kept thinking that I was going to grab an ice cream cart to try and leverage that. But 
I didn't actually end up doing that. My, my opponents were able to grab a couple of the easy ice cream carts, and I kept meaning to get around to grabbing another one. But by the time it made sense, I realized they had already um, cashed in a lot of the ice cream cone tokens, and they were really far ahead of me, which was, you know, a concern. I was like, man, I, I didn't go for the ice cream cones, and I knew I should have, and that was my plan, and I didn't, and now I'm losing. But... Because I had all of these larger boats, these larger boats also gave me more victory points. So I was able to kind of keep up to a certain extent. And um, I can't remember the exact plotting of how it worked, but when the dust settled and the game was over, I actually won on the tiebreaker to a player who made a ton of ice cream cones. And that felt great. I was really happy to see that because, like I said, going into the game, I was worried that, like, it was called Juicy Fruits, but realistically it should be called Ice Cream Carts because they seem so powerful. But then not only feeling like I had a slower start than everybody else, but also going a completely different strategy, piecing together points from a couple of stalls as well as um, just clearing off a lot of the boats to get victory points, I was able to tie somebody else who went hard on those ice cream cones and win on the tiebreaker. That made me feel really good. It's like, okay, well, I guess my preconceived notion that ice cream carts were more powerful than they should be wasn't correct, at least from this one data point. And um, that's a nice thing to see every now and then. I like uh, having examples uh, show me that um, just because I think a thing might be better than it is doesn't mean that it necessarily is. And uh, I was very happy to see that. Now, uh, we finished playing this game in... I think about an hour, maybe an hour 15, something like that for the four players. And um, one thing about this game is that there are two ways to play it. You can play the standard way, which I have in this image here, where you are just going to be spending your fruit to clear off these boats or to buy these business interests. And the other way that you can play the game is you flip this scoreboard over and then there is a factory module. And I should have grabbed a photo and put it up here. I didn't prepare that well enough, but uh, I do show that off in my tutorial. So if you're curious about it, then check out my tutorial because I talk all about it. But realistically, it is a third way that you can spend your fruit and you move little tokens down the factory and those will get you more victory points. Um, now, I thought the factory was pretty interesting when I played through it in the tutorial, but I couldn't help but worry that maybe the fruit that you spend in the factory is, you know, obviously not fruit going towards your boats or more importantly, towards these business interests. So I was worried that maybe it would detract the attention from the business interest board a little bit. And when I played this with people, uh, with my friends, I decided I wanted to try it without the factory. Um, I'm glad I did. I thought the game worked really well without the factory, but I am now quite curious to play this with friends with that factory to see how it goes. I don't think it's bad in any way. I just felt like, you know, Teaching this to people and playing it for the first time, I do think that playing without the factory is probably the right way to go. And it's very possible that I'll play it with the factory and then decide that my favorite way to play Juicy Fruits is without because of the extra simplicity. It's just a little bit less to teach. And um, the uh, output for your fruit is a little bit more defined where it's just the boats or it's just those different business interests. Um, but either way, I think this is a pretty lovely game. All of us enjoyed it. Um, I've only played it the one time. I haven't had a chance to play it again, but I, I definitely see myself wanting to. Um, I the idea of a Euro game where you re, uh, acquire the resources from this slidey puzzle um, is just so cool. You know, it reminds me of those puzzles where you have a single gap and you're kind of moving the tokens around trying to make an image or something like that. This is a more abstract, looser version of that where you gain resources and spend those to do things. And it also allows for a ton of planning where you think, okay, I'm going to move this token up a couple of spaces to get this fruit that I need. And that moves it out of the way so that I can then move this token clear across the board and get four of the thing. And then once that's gone, I can move this other token up and then boom, I'll have exactly what I need to, you know, cash out a bunch of ice cream cones or something like that. Um, so that did mean that there was a bit of downtime in this game. I wouldn't say it was too bad. Uh, I think I maybe suffered from it a little bit more than the rest, or at least suffered from analysis paralysis, thinking through 
all of the options and the steps that I wanted to take, uh, but I did end up winning, and I don't think the downtime was too bad, although I guess you'd have to ask my friends if I was being annoying or not. Uh, so yeah, that is Juicy Fruits. I'm uh, impressed with it. I, I liked it just as much as I thought I would, and I'm looking forward to playing this one more. So looking at the chat, uh, Heath says they just played Juicy Fruits last night and a good game uh, and enjoyed it. That, that's really great to hear. Uh, Jinray says uh, that this was announced for a Dutch-Flemish localization, but the date has not been set just yet. So that's cool to hear that this one is going to have uh, wider availability. Um, the publisher for this one is not only Capstone Games, but also Deep Print Games, um, which I think is a Euro uh, Europe-based publisher. Um, and it says three more publishers. So it seems like quite a few people are going to be publishing Juicy Fruits, which isn't too surprising. It's, it's a really neat streamlined game. I could see this one picking up quite a bit of traction. Uh, Second Stone says uh, they love how bright and colorful the game is, uh, and yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that was uh, my, my second impression of the game. The first impression was, wow, slidey puzzle resource management. That sounds cool. My second reaction was, wow, shiny fruit tokens and lots of lovely colorful art, um, which I do enjoy. Like, theme isn't usually that important to me, and honestly, the theme is not super strong in this game. Like, why are you paying off these boats to leave your island? I don't know, and a lot of these business interests don't make a ton of sense, but mechanically, they make a lot of sense, and I love the aesthetics of games and the art of games, and I think that uh, this one really pulls it off. It's, it's a really good-looking game overall. All right, I think on that note, we can move on to the next game, and this one is Sheepy Time. Uh, this one is published by Alderac Entertainment, or AEG, and um, I did not know anything about this game when it showed up on my doorstep. Uh, AEG tends to send me a copy of each of their games they publish, which I really do appreciate, but I remember the box arrived, and I opened it up, and I was like, Sheepy Time? Like, I had not heard anything about this, and I tend to think that I have my finger on the pulse of the new game uh, uh, stream <laughs> to a certain extent. You know, I, I constantly follow the RSS feed for the new games published to BGG, so it feels somewhat rare for me to not know about a game when it gets published, but that did happen here. Uh, my first reaction was, that's a hilarious, very cutesy name, and I put it on my shelf and said, okay, I'll get to that at some point, and then a month or two went by. I mean, at this point, we weren't quite playing games with other people, and there was no online implementation of it yet, and I didn't really know anything about the game to be necessarily excited about making a tabletop simulator mod or something like that. Uh, but then, a couple of weeks ago, I started to hear people talk about it in podcasts. I started to see people tweet about it on uh, Twitter, and um, everything that I saw was like, wow, this Sheepy Time game is a lot of fun. You should definitely uh, take a look at it. And so when I had an opportunity to go to a in-person game night last month, Day, I said, you know what? I should learn this game. Like, people are saying it's fun, and it's sitting there on my shelf. I have it. I should give this one a try. So I read the rules, and then we played it that night. Um, and we played a four-player game and thoroughly enjoyed it. And then just last night at another in-person gaming event, um, we played it again. Um, it was a three-person game this time, and everyone played it last week, or at least learned it last week. So uh, we just jumped right into it, and we really enjoyed it the second time. So on that preamble, or with that preamble done, let's now talk a little bit about how this game works. Uh, so this is a push-your-luck style game, where thematically everybody plays the sheep that um, people are counting to try and fall asleep to. So it has a sleeping kind of vibe overall, and a nightmare vibe that I'll talk about in just a second. Now mechanically, the way this game works is you are going to win if you are able to get your Winx token <laughs> all the way up to your pillow token on this track. At the start of the game, the pillow token is at 40, and at the beginning of each round, your Winx go to zero. So that means in the first round of the game, 
game. If you get 40 winks, you'll just win the game in that first round. But that seems incredibly unlikely. Now, the way this works is within each round of the game, players are going to have two of these cards in front of them. And when you have your turn, you're going to play one of the two cards and then do what it says. Um, unfortunately, I didn't put any examples of what the cards look like in this image, but um, they're very straightforward. They have cutesy shape art, and they say things like move two spaces or five spaces. Or they might say move three spaces or gain two winks, which you just essentially gain the victory points there on the track. Um, they also might say uh, move six spaces or catch two Zs. Now, Z tokens are these little tokens with Zs on them, like you're sleeping, you know, like you're snoring, essentially. Uh, they should probably be calling calling them snoring tokens, um, and you put them next to the dream tiles around this central board. Now, everybody has a shape token, and when I say you move spaces, you're going to be moving clockwise around this rondelle, um, an exact number of spaces equal to the number that your card says. Now, if you land on a spot that has a dream tile that you can activate, then you can do what the dream tile says. Um, now, some of these dream tiles have infinite Z tokens on them, which means that player can do it as many times as they want, but most of them have these Z tokens off to the side. And when you activate them, you simply remove that Z token and put it back into your supply, and then you do whatever that tile says. Now, at the start of the game, you randomly put two of these dream tiles out, and there are 10 spots around the entire board, so only two out of the 10 spots have a dream tile. So in that first round, there's only two special actions that are available, and no one even has Zs next to them at the beginning of the game, so you can play cards to put Zs there in order to activate them if you like their effects. Now, there is a huge stack of these dream tiles. I think it's like 30 or 40, something like that, and every single one of them is different. And so as you're playing the game, you're trying to work your yourself into a situation to land on the spots with the dream tiles that you can activate to then get benefits that you like, and every benefit is different, and sometimes the conditions uh, will make it so that you don't actually want to activate them. Now, in the first round of the game, there's just two of these dream tiles, so most of the spaces that you land on don't do anything, and that means the first round is a little bit lighter on overall decisions. You have these two cards, you play one of them, and you move forward. And uh, most of the time, you don't do anything else. And every time your sheep crosses over the fence from the 10 spot to the one spot, you gain five winks. Now, every time you cross that fence, you also have a very important decision. Do you want to um, call it night? <laughs> Literally, that's what it's called, calling it a night. Or do you want to keep going? Now, the only time you can call it a night is right when you cross over that fence. And this is where the nightmare comes into play. Now, the game comes with three different nightmares, and you use one of them with each play. In the first game, we used the nightmare wolf, and in the second game, we used the bump in the night. There was also a spider, which I haven't tried just yet. Now, you shuffle up nightmare cards into the draw deck, and every time you draw a card that shows a nightmare, the nightmare token is going to move around this track depending on what the card says. And if the nightmare ever lands on a spot with one of your sheep, you become scared and you lie down. And if you ever become scared again, then you wake up. When you wake up, you remove your token, and all of your winks go back to zero, so you essentially bust uh, in a push-your-luck way. And another way that you wake up is if the nightmare ever crosses the fence itself. At that point, everyone who's still out here is going to wake up. Now, what that means is you have a tempo to the game, or to each round anyway, as you randomly pull these nightmare cards out, and you always draw another card afterwards, but it's possible you might draw two or three nightmare cards in a row, which means this nightmare will scoot around, making people afraid, and also potentially just end the round by crossing over the fence. So again, when you jump over the fence, you decide to stop or not. And if you don't, you have to make it all the way back around the fence before you can decide to stop again. So it's a pretty big decision. And you know, you have two cards in your hand and you usually just play one. So if your other card says move seven or something like that, then maybe you'll decide to push your luck. But if the other card says move one or two spaces, maybe you decide to just call it a night. Now, once everyone has called it a night or woken up, you will, um, 
look over to the wink board, and the person with the most winks is going to move their pillow down the most spaces. I believe it's always 10. It depends on the player count, the number of spaces you go down. The player with the second most winks moves down a little bit less, third most, a little bit less, again, depending on the player count. And then no matter what the player count is, everyone who woke up will move down three. So no matter what, in every round, even if you bust, your pillow token will get three spaces closer to your wink tokens. And at the start of every round, your winks reset. So essentially, by going high on the wink track, you can move your pillow down, which makes your winning threshold closer. So winning these rounds, having more winks is definitely a good thing, but it does not necessarily mean you are going to win the game. And then between each round, every player is going to potentially add new dream tiles to spots on the board. So as you go deeper into the game, there will be more and more of these actions, and they can do a wide variety of things. They might say um, you can catch a Z and become brave. When you become brave, you just stand back up because you're no longer scared. Uh, there's another one called trampoline, where when you land on it, you remove a token, and then you move forward a number of spaces equal to the number of spaces you move to land on that trampoline, so you're bouncing off of it. There's a shepherd tile that lets you move every sheep forward or backward once, which means you can actually run other sheep into the nightmare, which will make them scared or potentially even make them wake up. And there are just a ton of other options. There's one where you cash out all of your Z's to move forward a whole bunch uh, to potentially let you move around this thing even a couple of times if you set things up right. Um, obviously, there's a lot of setup to go there. And every time we play this game, the variety of these stream tiles that come out is going to be different. So I probably went into way too many specifics there, and I apologize. I just got a little excited talking about the mechanics because there's a lot of cool stuff going on in this game. Um, I could start this off and say, oh, it's a push-your-luck game, but from that point on, there's just so much new things in here that I can't just say, oh, this is just like this other game, and oh, that's like this other game over there. And I was really impressed by the innovation that I saw here. I mean, nothing is necessarily groundbreaking, but the way all this stuff works um, is really quite fascinating. Uh, from a push-your-luck perspective, you do have that tension when you cross the fence. Like, do you think you can make it around? Sure, the nightmare is just a couple of spaces away, but you've seen most of those nightmare cards. There's just two or three left in the deck, and the deck still has like, you know, 15 cards in it. Surely you can make it all the way around, or maybe the next card drawn will push that over, and then you wake up. Another big part of this game is the combos that you can set up. Now, again, you only have two cards in your hand, and you select one, and at the end of your turn, you draw another one back into your hand. But as you progress deeper into the game and more of these dream tiles are added, you'll be able to set up situations where you say you play this card to land on this spot to activate that dream tile to give you a benefit. Maybe it's some winks. Maybe it lets you move forward again. Maybe it lets you do a wide variety of other effects. There's, there's quite a bit. Uh, one of them lets you just draw the top card from the deck and play that one as well as gaining a wink. And... Gaining even one wink can be important because the main way you get winks is by jumping over this fence and you get five every time. So if everybody's getting five chunks and then you gain just one more, that could be enough to um, be in first place and move your pillow down a whole bunch more. Now, I played this one twice, and in our first game, um, the winner set up a really big combo. Like, they won because of these dream tiles. There was one where it says when you land there, you pull off all of your Z tokens, and you move forward a certain number of spaces based off of the number of tokens you pull off, and they set this up for rounds. They kept piling more and more Z tokens on. You only have a certain number of them, and they maxed out their Z tokens on this one tile, and then in a round where their pillow was kind of close, I think it was in the low 20s, they landed on that spot and I think looped around the track twice and just jumped up and they crossed the threshold that they needed to be at and then they were able to call it a night and no one else was able to catch up. Um, if multiple people crossed their pillow, then the player who crossed their pillow 
farthest is going to win the game. So that is definitely something to consider. But again, that first game, the, the player won because they set up a massive dream tile combo that took quite a bit of planning, and there was definitely strategy involved there. Uh, last night, when I played this one at three players, um, I had a couple lucky breaks. Um, the first couple of rounds I won, so my pillow moved down um, 10 each time. So after at the start of the third round, my pillow was at the 20 spot instead of the 40 spot, which was huge. Then in the third round, I think it moved down like five or so times, maybe three. And by the time we got to, I think, the fifth or sixth round, my pillow was at the 13 spot. And that was the round I was going to win. That seems super doable, right? So I placed the cards down and I jumped over the fence a couple times and I got up to, I think, I think about three spaces above my wink token, and I decided to stop. At that point, it was just me and one other player, and that other player's pillow was, I think, at 27, so almost double what I had overall. And when you are the last person out here, you actually have to essentially double draw cards, so you are more likely to draw nightmares when you are by yourself. So you can keep going as long as you want, but it's more harrowing. And I backed out, and I figured I had this game in the bag, I crossed over the thing, they were by themselves, and they just kept playing. The nightmare moved a little bit, and they kept playing. Um, this was the bump in the night nightmare, which can actually jump forward and backward, and it jumped backward a little bit, which made me a little bit worried, and my opponent was able to keep going and going, and they ended up getting, I think, 30 winks, which is was exactly what they needed to not tie me, and then they stopped, and they won the game. They were losing the entire game. Their token was, I think, at 27. Uh, they busted, I think, three times, and I didn't. I had, you know, uh, first place finishes in the first couple of rounds, and I got cocky. You know, it seemed like I had this one in the bag, and my pillow was so far down, and realistically, I should have kept pushing, because if I'd kept pushing, I would have pushed my wink token significantly farther, and I obviously, well, I say obviously, but I very likely could have gone around one more time, considering my opponent was able to go around a couple more times, I think maybe even three more times before this moved, and again, that is kind of where the push-your-luck things come into play. I decided that I was safe, and I was not safe. I did not push my luck, and I did not ensure that that would be a victory for me, and I lost, and I had fun with it. Like, I definitely felt ownership of that loss, like, okay, okay, all right, you know, maybe... I should have pushed this a little bit more and made sure it was fine because, you know, in a worst case scenario, if I had busted in that uh, moment, odds seemed good that my opponent would also bust and then my pillow would go down even more and it would be even easier to cross that uh, by a big amount to win it. So yeah, that is sheepy time. I I've enjoyed both of the plays of this. I, I do think my biggest concern with the game is potentially a vibe disconnect, if that makes sense. Because when, when you look at the, the cover of this game, um, it looks like... A, a kid's game, like like something you would teach, you know, five or six-year-olds or something like that. And it does say 10 plus right there, but the art vibe, which I don't mind, in fact, I actually really like the art, but my first instinct is, this is a kid's game. And then I started reading the rules and started actually teaching this game, and I realized this is not a kid's game at all. In fact, I don't think you should, like, I, I don't have a ton of experience with teaching games to kids, but I think um, you certainly would not be able to play this game, I think, with a five or six-year-old. Uh, probably 10-year-old would be fine. Again, I don't have a lot of experience, but um, it just made me realize that there's a lot more game here than the art makes it look. And even just the teach, like, I know I was talking for a while about how this game worked because there was just another mechanic I wanted to mention to you and another mechanic I wanted to mention to you. And when I've been teaching it to other people, I guess technically I've only taught it once, it did kind of feel like that. Like, I opened this up, everyone's like, okay, let's try this cute game. And I kept talking and people kept going, huh, huh, that's cool. Oh, that's cool. Like, as I talked about how the scoring condition works, how we build out these dream tiles that are different every time, how we are trying to chain together different combos and how the nightmares work and all these different things, and especially how the push your luck element works. Um, there's just lots of affirmative, huh, 
around the table. And uh, yeah, it, it was a really good time. Uh, I think the first play took probably about an hour 15 uh, at four players, and the second play took uh, definitely under an hour. But again, um, the three of us were already experienced with the game. One person in the three-player game was taught it last week, but didn't actually play it, but um, they remembered all of the rules. Uh, because even though there's a decent bit going on here, it does flow together well. Um, there's a lot of different mechanics that work in a really interesting way, and I'm honestly bummed that I played this one now and not like a month ago uh, when I first got it, because this is a rondelle, and this is a super interesting rondelle. So I absolutely would have talked about this game in my top, well, it wasn't really a top list, but my uh, rondelles and what they do video that I put out about a month ago, because I didn't talk about any push your luck rondelles, which is exactly what this is doing. Um, also, this is a rondelle that you build out that multiple players can use, and I think that's just so fascinating. I didn't actually mention this, but when you choose a new dream tile to put onto the wheel, you get to put a infinite Z token down or just three tokens, depending on what it says. So what that means is you are influencing the game and the combos available, and right off the bat, you can use it either as many times as you want or up to three times, which is quite a bit. So you not only have agency for what combos there are, but you have a little bit of ownership there uh, based off of um, what they are and what their bonuses are. So that is uh, Sheepy Time. I'm super impressed with it. Um, I wouldn't say it's like the best game I played this year or anything like that, but I do think I'm going to keep throwing it into my uh, game bag to bring it to situations because uh, it's fun, it's cute, uh, lots of laughs happen in this game, and there is definitely room for creative play while the overall decision space is not gigantic because obviously you only have those two cards. And I certainly do want to play this with the last nightmare, the spider. There's a web token that you put down onto the board and it does something. I haven't even read the rules for it yet, but um, it's great that there is that extra variety. Like this easily could have shipped just with the Nightmare Wolf, which just slowly moves around. It doesn't really do anything interesting, but they added extra ones that jump around and put spider tokens down and all that. And I think that's uh, really cool. It's a great package. And um, I'm happy to be talking about it now because it does seem like a couple people have mentioned this one, but it um, overall has flown under the radar. I didn't really see any marketing push for this one or anything. And I think it's a cool game that more people should know about. Uh, all right, let's take a look at some of the chat comments here. Uh, Mom Gamer says that um, they absolutely enjoy uh, Sheepy Time, so that's great to hear. I'm not the only one who is digging this one. I haven't actually heard anything bad about the game. Again, the only issue I think it might have is an expectation offset from the art based uh, to what the game actually plays like. Uh, Jinrei says, I would still love to see a playthrough of Sheepy Time to get a better lay of the land. Uh, yeah, uh, it's possible that could happen. Um, up to this point, I've only ever done sponsored tutorials for AEG when they do Kickstarters, not for their straight-to-release uh, products like this. Although um, AEG games often win the Patreon poll um, to for the couple videos that I make each month. Um, this one was on the poll, I think, honestly, for a couple of months, but I don't think anybody knew anything about it, so nobody really voted for it. Uh, maybe after I'm talking it up here and more people have heard about it, it might do better. I certainly would not mind doing a uh, playthrough for this one. It's, it's a really cute game that um, I think deserves more attention. All right, we can now move into the third and final game I'll be talking about today, and that is Transamerica. Uh, now, the previous two games I talked about uh, are brand new, like they're just coming out right now, and Transamerica came out in 2001, so this is a 20-year-old game. Uh, now, I have been interested in playing Transamerica for a while now. Um, I started falling in love with Cube Rails about seven, six, seven months ago, and when I uh, started doing research into what Cube Rails games are and what options there are, I kept 
bumping into Transamerica. And I've heard about Transamerica for the entire time I've been playing games. Um, so it was kind of there, like, oh, okay, I just assumed it was like, you know, Ticket to Ride or like some other like super light game uh, overall that uh, didn't do that much for me. Like Ticket to Ride is fine. And I guess calling it super light is, is wrong. But um, I never found myself gravitated to coming back to Ticket to Ride, and I just assumed it would be similar to that. And spoiler alert, it is, but it's different in some pretty important ways. And <laughs> spoiler alert for myself, um, when I played this one last week, I went to log my play, and I was shocked to see that I had two log plays of this. One was in 2011, and I think the other one was in 2013, and I have zero recollection of playing these games. Uh, I've been logging every game that I play, or at least uh, attempting to log every game I play since January of 2020. 10. So I have, you know, going on 11 years of logging. And this is part of the reason why I wanted to do that so that the um, internet could remember what I had played so I didn't have to rely on my memory. But I thought that was really funny. Like, I was so interested in getting this one out and trying it because it seemed so interesting. And I went to log it. And not only was I surprised to see that I'd logged those plays, but I had, even while playing it, I wasn't like, oh, this feels familiar. I played it before. No, there was no memory of that at all. But I, you know, have played hundreds, if not thousands of games since I played this one last time, uh, so I guess it's not too surprising. Uh, now, Transamerica, again, came out in 2001, and this is a very simple game. Uh, it is easily uh, simpler than Ticket to Ride, um, and what we have is a map of the United States with a triangle grid, and on uh, the way this game works is at the start of each round, you're going to draw one card associated with each of the five different regions of the United States that are matched up with different city names, and then on your turn, you're going to play one or two of these neutral railroad tokens down onto the board, and that's what you do. You put one or two tokens down, and then the next person plays one or two railroads down, and you keep going clockwise around. And the goal of this game is to have these railroad lines connecting all five of your cards up. Uh, now, as soon as that happens, even if it's not your turn, you reveal your cards. You can then prove that all of them are connected, and then the round ends. At that point, everyone counts the number of rail tokens they would need that don't exist to connect all of their cards, and then they lose that number of victory points. So the player who connects all of them up, essentially gets zero points and everybody else loses some. I think you start with 13 points or something like that. And then you clear off the entire board except for the score track and you shuffle all the cards up, you deal five more out, and then you play again. And you keep playing until one player or more have um, essentially lost too many victory points. And that, at that point, the player with the most points is going to be the winner. And that's the game. <laughs> There's a big difference from Sheepy Time. Like I just taught the whole game of Transamerica. And the reason I was so interested in this it's because of that simplicity. Um, I've been intrigued for a while, and then actually about two or three weeks ago, um, Eric Martin from Board Game Geek put out a video um, essentially talking about how great Transamerica is, especially considering how easy it is to teach to just sit down and start playing. And when I saw Eric's video, I said, okay, I'm going to get this game played. Uh, and there is a copy of it at Victory Point Cafe's uh, library. So um, last week, I pulled it off the shelf, and we ended up playing a five-player game of this one. Uh, now, I taught it just the way I just taught to you, and we started playing the game, and instantly I realized that um, I was going to enjoy this game as much as I was hoping I would. And even though this game is simpler mechanically than something like Ticket to Ride, where you are doing, um, you have different cards, and you're obviously trying to make routes in that game, but you're putting your own specific railroad track tokens down, and there's blocking, and there's other stuff going on, um, even though this game is simpler, 
I was really enjoying the mechanics of it more because of the shared usage of these tracks. Um, now, in general, most cube rails games and train games in general have stocks, like you buying stocks in different companies, and if you have the most stocks, you're the president, and you get to do fancy things. And obviously, in Transamerica, there are no stocks. I didn't talk about any when I was teaching it, but there is the idea of shared incentives here because you're all sharing this track. When you put track down, not only do you get to use it, but your opponents can as well. So what that means is you are trying to put down track that will help you out and also potentially not help your opponents, but you don't know what cards your opponents have in their hands. Now we played a five player game, so that means all but two of the cities in each of the regions was going to be in a player's hand. So if you're working towards a city, then odds are good you're helping somebody else out. So what that meant is there was uh, frequently situations where you tried to build track specifically to where you wanted to go and not in a way that would make it close to other cities so that other players could build off of it because you don't want to make their life any easier. Now, I'll say right now that I was not very good at this game. I don't think I ever cleared all of my cards before everybody else. In fact, I think I was the person that uh, took too many victory points and caused the game to end. And we played, I don't know, I think five or six rounds, something like that. And it probably took about 45 to 50 minutes. And um, despite that, I still really enjoyed it. Um, now, there is luck of the draw here. Um, you, it is possible that um, some hands of cards are just easier to connect than others. But with the idea being that you play round after round of this game, um, Hypothetically, that randomness should get smoothed out. Um, it might not. That is definitely a possibility. But hypothetically, it would be. And there is definitely room for trying to play smart. Uh, you want your opponents to do your work for you. So if you see somebody kind of working near-ish to one of your cities, maybe you work towards something else. Uh, in particular, if you have a dangler city that's not really close to uh, anything else, um, like I think, uh, what was this one right over here? Uh, I think... I can't remember, it's blocked by these cards, but there's one down in Texas uh, that isn't really close to that much else. So working towards that one, obviously you are telegraphing that that's a card that you have, but you're probably not helping anybody else out. Whereas on the West Coast, you have uh, Portland and Bedford and Sacramento and uh, San Francisco, they're all super close to each other. So you might want to target in, like um, in the example in this image, I had Portland. So I was trying to move directly at Portland and not close to as many of the other green cities as possible because I didn't want to help anybody out. And I remember later on in the game, I had a situation where, um, actually, no, it was this image in, uh, right here. I had the Richmond card. And um, in order to get there, the quickest way to get there uh, at a certain situation was to just go from the uh, southeast all the way up. But I was worried that would put track really close to Charleston and Winston, which I was not close to. But by the time I got to actually move, track had moved down near New York and Washington. So it made a lot more sense to just connect Richmond up to Washington. And I was glad that I waited. I kept thinking I would start working my, my way up to Richmond, but I was worried about connecting it for other people. So I did other stuff. And then other people did my work for me, getting things, um, uh, bringing things in. And then I was able to work off of that. Again, I didn't actually win the game, <laughs> but I still really enjoyed how all of this worked. Uh, now, before I move on, I want to mention that there is an expansion for this game that came out in 2007 called Vexation, which I think is a wonderful name for an expansion. And it's really simple. It just brings in three track tokens in each player's color so they're not neutral. Now, my understanding, I haven't actually played with it, but my understanding is when you play with the Vexation expansion, then within each of the rounds, up to three of your placements can be that track of your own color, and no one else can use that track. And I have to admit that while I enjoyed playing Transamerica, 
I feel like I really want to play it with that Vexation expansion because I think that will open the game up even more. Um, there will still be shared um, incentives as you're all using this track, but you could also strategically put down your own colored track uh, to vex your opponents so that they will have to work harder to go around, and I feel like that might open up the decision space even more. Uh, so at this point, I am actually interested in trying to track down a copy of this one as well as trying to track down a copy of the Vexation expansion because I think the added complexity of rules isn't much. I think I just talked it to you. It's possible I got something slightly wrong because I haven't played with it, but I think that's how it works. And I think that added complexity would be great. Um, again, this is a game that's just super easy to teach and it plays up to six players. So from a flexibility perspective, I am quite enamored with it. Um, you can start playing this game like less than five minutes after you bring it out. The setup is also incredibly simple overall, and you just get in to making these decisions. And even in a five player game like we played here, um, you might, you know, obviously be only taking a turn every five times and you're waiting for other people to make their decisions, but you are actively paying attention to what they are doing because what they're doing certainly might help you and you want that, you want to capitalize off of that as much as you can. So yeah, I was super impressed by Transamerica and I am still uh, humorously uh, surprised that I have no recollection of playing this one twice, you know, uh, what, like 10 and 7 years ago. Um, I guess it didn't make as big of an impression on me at that time, which is kind of interesting to think about. Like, why don't I remember playing this one before? Um, you know, maybe I'm liking this one so much more because I now really like train games, so I have that uh, predisposition there. Or maybe the people I played with didn't make for as fun of a situation back then. Uh, I think it's especially comical that I played it twice and I don't remember. If it was just once back in 2011, that would make sense. But I also played it in 2013 or 2014, so uh, that's just funny to me. I mean, I started John Gets Games in 2014, so <laughs> I've been making videos for about as long as the amount of time I played this game last, and I don't remember it at all. But either way, uh, that is Transamerica. It's an oldie, but it's uh, certainly good. Um, it's been published by a lot of um, publishers overall, and it looks like it shouldn't be too hard for me to acquire a copy. I've definitely picked up a lot of train games recently, but but this one, I really like the idea of it. Also, this feels like I could, br um, from a flexibility perspective, bring this to other situations like um, family vacations for Christmas or Thanksgiving and that kind of thing. I feel like I could bring this one and so easily teach it quickly and then play an experience where everybody's paying attention to what they're doing and, you know, laughing when somebody does something that's going to help them out. I just feel like this one could be just a really flexible game overall that could potentially be played a bunch. Uh, so yeah, that is Transamerica. Um, Hans says uh, that this game is great, and uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, there's also like a, a Trans Japan or, or some alternate version. There's, there's a whole bunch of different versions of it, um, but uh, this was the one that I think I'm most interested in picking up a copy of. Um, it was originally published by Winsome, um, so I assume the original version had you putting cubes down instead of uh, actually putting down these different sticks, but um, I, I could be wrong there. I'm sure the, the original version did not look anywhere near as good as this one. Okay, well, that is going to wrap this uh, Good Games vlog up. I usually try to talk about no more than four games, and I only had three to talk about. Um, I guess I will say here that I did play another game <laughs> over this last week. Just two days ago, I played a game of Rising Sun, uh, a six-player game of it, and I had a really enjoyable time because of the people that I played the game with, but I wasn't actually that impressed with Rising Sun, so I decided I didn't really want to spend the time to talk about it here in the Good Games vlog because um, it didn't really get there for me. And, um, you know, that does apply to other games that I play sometimes. That's part of the reason why I decided to do the uh, 
good games vlog thing instead of just doing the impressions vlogs in general. Um, so yeah, um, I have a bunch of new games that I am hoping to play. I'll tell you right now, also, I keep playing Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition, so that is cutting in a little bit to the new games that I am playing. Uh, last night, I played it for the fourth time, and I won for the first time, and for the fourth time in a row, I've really enjoyed it. Um, it definitely seems like luck of the draw might be veering its head a little bit more than I'd like um, um, compared to when I first discussed my impressions of it, but I keep playing this one. I keep really enjoying the engine building of it. So um, as a tag on, I can say I'm, I'm still loving Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition, and I, it will likely continue to be played. I mean, honestly, playing it four times now means it's been played more times than most of the games in my collection, and I have actually played it three times in the last seven days. So that, that says a lot. And, and I really try to play the games I enjoy while also playing new stuff, because I try to push new stuff. I, I enjoy playing new things, but I, I'm trying not to exclude myself from also playing games that I just straight up enjoy, like playing Sheepy Time a second time was great, and playing Terraforming Mars a fourth time last night was great, when um, I could have played um, something brand new that I hadn't actually covered before. So uh, yeah, that is going to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much to everybody who joined in on the live stream and to everyone who decided to watch this one in the future. Um, I will probably be doing another one of these in a week or two once I've played three to four new games. Uh, I imagine that will happen as I continue to delve into the pile of stuff that I have been gathering over the pandemic. Uh, so yeah, that is going to bring this one to a close.